Welcome to the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast series. I'm Kit Duval and I've worked with the festival director Chantal Edwards as guest curator of this year's podcast series. Each Thursday, across the next few months, we'll be releasing new episodes of the podcast, including wonderful discussions about writing, poetry, big ideas and social issues. This week's episode brings together journalists Natalie Fines and Lynn Enright to discuss the politicisation of women's bodies and sexual desire, the importance of sex education and the impact of the porn industry on our attitudes towards sex and our own bodies. In conversation with Birmingham Literature Festival director Chantelle Edwards, this episode continues the conversation about sex, intersectional feminism and gender started by the author's books Behind Closed Doors, Sex Education Transformed and Vagina, a re-education. Welcome to the Birmingham Literature Festival podcast. I'm Chantal Edwards and I'm the festival director and I'm really excited today to welcome writers Lynn Enright and Natalie Fines to the podcast and to join them in discussion about their books. Uh, I'm going to introduce them both and their books to you and then we're going to dive into a wonderful chat about their work and all the ways their books are challenging our ideas about sex, women's bodies, intersectional feminism and last but most certainly not least, vaginas. Our first guest is Lynn Enright and she's a journalist who has written for Vogue, The Irish Times, The Guardian and BuzzFeed as well as many other publications where she writes about feminism, current affairs, women's health, fashion, the arts, politics and pop culture. The book we're here to talk about today, Vagina, A Re-Education, is her first book and it provides people with information that's often obscured about the female body, confronting taboos and the patriarchy in the process. Our second guest is Natalie Fines, a journalist and filmmaker who writes for The Guardian and The Independent. She makes documentaries and has taught sex education and consent classes in schools, universities and youth centres. Behind Closed Doors, Sex Education Transformed is her first book and it offers a manifesto for an inclusive sex education that offers young people an honest insight into sexuality whilst identifying the varied and layered inequalities that currently stand in the way of sexual freedom. A very warm welcome to you both. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. I loved both of your books. Um, I thought they were really compelling reads and I came away from them feeling like I'd learned a lot. And when I was reading them, it really felt like there was real passion and impetus behind them. Um, And I wanted to start by asking you both, and perhaps we could start with Lynn, about what had inspired you to write them. So I was working at The Pool, which is now defunct, but was a website aimed at women. And it was a place that kind of covered a broad array of topics and I was head of news and content there so commissioning stuff about politics and feminism but also you know kind of film or books or you know really everything but um, when we did when we covered subjects about women's bodies and about kind of taboo subjects like fertility, infertility, miscarriage, childbirth, post-childbirth vaginas, all of that kind of stuff, there was just a a real uh, response from the readers. So that got me thinking and, you know, I kind of could sense that and I wanted to do something with that. And then also around that time, Me Too had happened and 
the repeal the eighth movement in Ireland was underway. So the push for uh, free, safe, legal abortion in Ireland. And we'd never had legal abortion in Ireland, but we were on the cusp of it then when I started to write this book. And so I got, I got to think about how the basics of biology and the the fact that so often just the basics about our bodies are obscured, whether that's in sex education or even in the way we're spoken to, kind of wooliness um, and and a lack of clarity around the way we speak about our own bodies and the, the knowledge we actually have available to us. So I, I got to think how that's connected to then these much wider concepts and and, and problems like you know like what we saw with me too so like sexual assault and sexual abuse and like the fact that you know abortion wasn't legal in Ireland until two years ago and I think that that was connected to our discomfort around biology so it was kind of bringing those two subjects together was was how this book started. Thank you I think you can really uh you can really feel that in the book as well as I was reading it I certainly felt like all of I could see the intersections of the ways all those things were working together and the same for your book as well Natalie I thought you did a really good job of of showing the ways that women's bodies in particular are the intersection for a lot of those things so same question to you really was there a, a, a particular moment that led to you writing the book yeah so I was also working at a a magazine called Consented Magazine, and we used to kind of publish publish these pieces on a array of different topics. But we also used to go uh, into schools and teach classes and lead workshops. And I, with a kind of few other people, and um, we were attached to this kind of activist collective called Resist and Renew. Started teaching consent and sex education workshops in schools, and for us, the focus was always around you know, not just providing like the practical tools of, of sex education, but also trying to teach young people or show them how these issues are often so much more connected to wider political social structures. And I found going into the schools, like really, really rewarding and incredibly inspiring. And since then, I kind of afterwards, I started writing about it and realized, you know, quite in lots of ways, quite how far young people had come in terms of their sex education the same as Lynn it was also a similar time that Me Too was all coming out so lots of the young people were discussing the implications of the movement um, and what it meant for them in terms of their own experiences with sexual violence and feminism and so on and there have been some really fantastic resources that are now available online but in lots of ways it also hadn't come along that far and it made me reflect on my own sex education and how bad it was which um you know, really motivated me basically to turn those articles that I was writing into something a bit more sustained, which is where the book came from. Thank you. I think reading both uh, of your books, it did also really make me think of my own sex education classes in school, which were also terrible. So it's nice to know that we've at least all shared that terrible experience. I think what really struck me about both of your books is the ways in which women's bodies and sex and sex education are all political issues I think that came across really well specifically the female body so that seemed to be like a very specific political site um so thinking you know the cultural refusal to properly name the vulva and you know anything from that to the sort of the overwhelming fixation with the bodies of trans women and girls 
And I was wondering whether you think that now that we are sort of in the aftermath of Me Too and those sort of really great moments of activism, whether we're starting to move away from these oppressive ideas about women's bodies. Maybe if we start with you, Natalie. Yeah, I think I think there's been, you know, in particular since the outpourings that came about since the Me Too movements, but more generally, I guess, since like the birth of social media and how much more available information can be online about body positivity, you know, dispelling some of the myths around diet culture, you know, tackling some of the norms we have around like race or ableism or, or you know, the kind of bodies that we were told growing up that you have to look like because they were plastered all over the magazines and they were in all the films and everyone looked exactly the same. So yeah, I think in lots of respects, there's been a huge backlash against some of those like norms. And I think you see that within the kind of commercial sphere as well. So, you know, like products, companies that sell products have now realized that there's this movement for inclusivity or challenging norms around beauty for in particular for women and there's much more like diversity in in advertising which in lots of respects is very good but I think you know these as with everything these norms around beauty or these norms around the way that women are supposed to look or, or people generally are meant to look do come from somewhere and they come from systems of oppression which in lots of ways haven't the material conditions of those systems aren't necessarily being as challenged so even though it's really fantastic that you see these kind of norms around beauty standards being criticized you know, sometimes it would be it'd be it'd be really great to see those connected to kind of more broad movements that are kind of really challenging, really radical, and putting forward a different a different way of viewing bodies and and beauty. Yeah, thank you. I can see that it does um, it does feel like maybe a more superficial uh, empowerment, but the mm-hmm. underlying foundation still the same. Same question to you, really, Lynn. Do you feel hopeful about the way that we're moving in terms of the way we view women's bodies? Yeah, I I am hopeful, and I think you know that things are are changing all the time, and that you know I sort of Natalie's book came out, but and my book came out, and lots of other books came out. It was you know this this weird year, I think, where uh, a lot of books relating to the vagina came out. Nim Kowali's book came out. Dr. Jennifer Gunter's book came out. And, and it, it felt like it, it was, um, you know, even when I was doing the press for the book, it felt like, uh, magazines and newspapers were really open to it and really wanted to talk about it. So it was there in the media. But at the same time, when I was doing the research for my book, I, I sort of realized, and I think that this is just what happens to every feminist along the way. Um, you realize, you know, people have done this work before. I mean, literally for, for centuries, uh, women have been doing this work to educate each other about their own bodies. And, and then very specifically, people were doing very similar work in the seventies and eighties. And I feel like just before I was born, um, I was born in 1983 and just around then, you know, there was a real movement of educating women about their bodies and talking about the vulva and looking at the vulva uh, and that was all happening. And yet I feel by the time I sort of became a, an older child or a teenager 10 to 15 years later, I didn't feel like that was present in the way that I was taught or in the conversations I had or in the media. So it almost is like we we do all the work and then we forget it and we don't it, it's not passed on to the next generation and so i think we need to watch out for that and we also need to watch out for the fact that we do all this work but it's kind of simultaneously happening alongside 
labiaplasty being on the rise and, and, you know, lots of other quite harmful stuff. So yeah, like Natalie said, there's, you know, there are these movements in, in advertising, but the wider uh, structures remain. And so I think it's, you're always balancing trying to, be happy about what's good and what progress has been made, but be aware that the job isn't done and that the job may sort of never be done in a way that you can just sign off on. Yeah, so cautiously hopeful. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's a nice way of putting it, yes. There's that really nice moment in your book where you realise you'd never asked your own mother about her experience of the menopause. And I guess thinking about hope and things changing going forward, do you think that now we're of, uh, I guess I was born in 88, so we're a similar generation. Now that we're slightly better at talking about those things, it will be slightly easier for the generations that come up afterwards. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I look at friends of mine who have children and definitely I think the way they speak to their kids about their bodies is different to, to the way my parents, my parents were so lovely, so open, but you know, but Irish and Catholic and, and we didn't really speak about our bodies very openly. And now my friends who are bringing up kids do. And so there's just more of a, a more openness. And I, and I do think that will lead to, yeah, more openness about menopause or more openness about abortion or miscarriage or pregnancy, whether, you know, it's, and I suppose, you know, I guess with all of this stuff, you have to think that a lot of it is very depressing because, um, because of the sort of history of it. But also, you know, a lot of it is unpleasant, you know, period pain is hard, abortion is hard, miscarriage is hard and traumatic and horrible. But then there, is joy and so you want to be open about that joy as well and open about the joy of sex and and open about the the joy of menopause you know I think that even when we do speak about the menopause now it's either in a really kind of jokey way um so it becomes the butt of the joke and the woman who's who's experiencing it is also sort of the butt of the joke or it's you know about how terrible it is and and that's that's really important to talk about that but it's also important to talk about the fact that it can be really empowering for some people and it can mark the beginning of a really positive change for some people and i think that you know i i, I want us to be more open about about both sides of everything about how how hard it can be to have a vagina sometimes but how brilliant it can be too yeah thank you it's a really nice way of putting it what struck me is from from both of your books really is um, that there is a real sort of cultural silence around these issues. We don't talk about sex and we don't talk about periods and, and all of these things. And I wondered if I might come to you first, Natalie, and just ask what you think the consequences of that cultural silence around women's experiences and women's health might be. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really important question. You know, I think it's part of the reason why I definitely wrote this book and I imagine why Lynn wrote her book and why all these other people write books about sex and in a way that we hope is, is progressive and transformative. And it's, I suppose, in the void in, you know, when there's an absence of conversation or discussion, you know, you almost get an amplification of the norms around these issues, whether that's, you know, body image or if that's around sexual violence or the expectations of gender or the kind of the fluidity of sexuality. It's, it's in the silence where, you know, really strong held traditions 
are maintained and, and continue to exist. It kind of reminds me a bit, actually, I mean, perhaps we'll come on to talk about this, but, you know, at the moment with COVID and, and young people aren't going into schools and there's a whole group of people who are going to miss out on their sex education because of the pandemic, because there's a global health crisis. And there's a particular age group, in particular, like year five and year six, where it's really important that there's an intervention made by educators um, and by parents and by supporters and, and their friends. Because it's in those years in between primary and secondary school where people are kind of coming into puberty and they're learning about sex and sexuality. And, you know, in the absence of a good education, or in absence of, of conversations around these topics, you know, people, it's shown and research shows that people then go on to secondary school of an age where they're slightly older, you know, with really entrenched views around like LGBTQ rights or about feminism or about relationships. So, you know, we do literally see in in these instances and all the research shows that when we don't talk about sex and when we don't talk openly about relationships and the body and and feminism really yeah these norms prevail yeah and I think that's a really interesting point and actually was one of my questions was because you both mentioned in your books that the education framework around sex education mm. was due to change I think next month um, yeah. and I wondered if either of you knew and, and Natalie whether I don't know whether you know if those plans to change are, are still going to go ahead now that we're in the midst of this global pandemic. Yeah so I think basically the the government the Department for Education has said that schools can implement the new sex and relationship education curriculum if they want to but it's no longer compulsory. So they'll intend to make it compulsory next September, September 2021, you know, which in lots of respects kind of does make sense. Like, as we know, schools are under an enormous burden at the moment. There's a huge crisis in education what with the A-level results and with, you know, ensuring that young people have the right education tools. And even though it does make sense, it's still it's still a great tragedy. Um, when you think about all the all the education that people are going to be missing around sex and sexuality, so there's a huge question on what we can do after COVID or when things calm down, when things open up. There's going to be quite a big job, I think, to be done for sex educators and for teachers to um, see how we can move forward and, you know, both reflect on the period, but also fill in the gaps. Yeah, completely. And I think one of the ways that you both talk about those gaps being filled, I guess, is uh, is through porn and the huge rise of the sort of cultural normalization of porn and I was hoping to ask you both about that and the way that you think it's impacted on young people's ideas about sex and our relationships with our own bodies and I wondered what you what you thought the long-term impact of that of, of growing up with porn being such a normal part of cult, our culture really will be. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it, it just feels like, I think I say in the book, but the cat is out of the bag. You know, if you're an 11 year old and you want to see porn, you can find it. And if you, if you're doing that in a family that isn't open about sex, in a culture that isn't open about sex, in an education system that isn't open about sex and sex education. So you're doing it, you know, there's a vacuum around sex education, but simultaneously you can access porn whenever you want you know I think that that's that's a problem and I think that you know you're not getting the the education that you need to be able to contextualize that and that's how you end up with a situation where you know 
young girls are requesting labiaplasty because the labia sort of is, is, is absent from our culture. You know, we don't really know what the labia looks like. You know, I think that the most straight women don't really see other labias besides their own very often. And then if they do see it in porn, it's likely to look quite different either because the porn performer has had labiaplasty or, um, if it's a still image, perhaps it's been photoshopped or, or, you know, porn performers will, will happen to have very sort of, uh, symmetrical labia. And that's why they'll have been recruited into the industry or that's why they'll have, you know, they, that's why they'll have chosen to get into it. So, you know, I think that that's just a clear example of how you can look at porn and, if you don't have the right context and you, and that's your only um way of seeing something it, it can be really harmful and so i think you know sex education has been it's been so outdated because you know it was 18 years or something between the last guidance and, and the most recent guidance and in that time internet porn had happened and you know it was something like that should should have been uh, a wake up call or should have been a clarion call to action. You know, if suddenly something happens that disrupts how porn is distributed, which internet porn did, then of course that should have been addressed in sex education. And I think it's really important that, that we do it now. And you mention in your book, Natalie, you talk about, uh, Erica Lust, I think her name is, who is the feminist, uh, she makes feminist porn. And I guess the same question, but also a slight add-on mm. of as to whether you think there are ways in which porn can be used as a resource. Yeah, I, think, I mean, it's such an interesting question. And I, I really agree with Lynn that, you know, in the absence of a proper, good, rigorous sex education, um, like porn does become the sex education for many people, certainly for, you know, most people that I know. But, you know, something I write in the, about in the book is like, how porn has existed as far as we know you know for for thousands of years like humans have always created objects or visual representation as erotica basically and i think when we talk about porn today what we mean generally is the kind of mass produced hyper commercialized really deregulated straight porn that most of us think of when we when we imagine it which is, you know, as we all know, riddled with problems and riddled with unrealistic expectations, both on women, but on men, around body, around performance, around sexual expectation and all of this stuff. But there is, you know, an, a, a, a group and a growing kind of part of the industry, which kind of calls itself feminist or which follows principles around, um, you know, particularly around like the working, the, the politics of work. So paying performers properly making sure that they're safe, that they use contraception, you know, and in many cases that they have some input into the into the performance and the production of the films, you know, which means also that consent is right at the heart of any of these kind of new sort of parts of parts of the industry. So there is, I think there's a growing movement of, of porn, which is sort of challenging some of these norms around it, which I think is really exciting. But still the vast majority of porn is, you know, free. It's often degrading for women and, and so on. Just, I guess, changing tack slightly. I think what really struck me when I was reading your books and then thinking about your books was the way that language seems so critical, both in the sense of the words we use to describe women's bodies and the way, you know, 
um, we say front bottoms instead of vulvas, um, but also in the ways that words associated with women's bodies are almost unspeakable. So you were saying, Lynn, that, you know, we don't talk about miscarriage and we don't talk about menopause and periods. And I think both of your books are really excellent contributions towards helping us vocalise these things in ways that we haven't been able to before. But I wondered if you if you felt like that was changing in society more broadly, if we're becoming more open and I guess feeling less shame about our bodies. Do you think that's the case, Lynn? Yeah, I do. I do. I think it's the same thing, cautiously hopeful. And the same thing about looking at friends of mine who have kids and, you know, and, and calling a vulva a vulva. Um, but at the same time, when I, when I was promoting this book and, and going to bookshops and literary festivals, often, you know, people would ask the question, well, what, you know, I have a daughter and what do you think we should call it? Because there isn't a good name because, you know, we, front bottom, I know is a bit ridiculous, but, but there's nothing else. And, you know, I just, well, you can say vulva. So I think there is still a bit of hesitancy about using the word vulva. I, I think it's got a sort of, I don't know a bad reputation or something I feel like uh, and I say it in the book the book is called vagina a re-education and when I started to write the book I kept referring to the whole thing the whole area as vagina because I thought you know well that's what we call it you know I know that it's not biologically correct but it's what you know colloquially we call that area the vagina but then I as I as I did more research I realized you know what a disservice we're doing the vulva by calling it the vagina and by not using the correct term the vulva and again that's something that you know feminists were talking about in the 70s and 80s the importance of the word the vulva and I think that we're still a little uncomfortable about about that word because I think the vagina is more well you know it's the birth canal and it's where if you're having heterosexual penetrative sex it's necessary whereas the vulva is is feels more sort of I think it does feel a bit more like a feminist word because it exists on its own not to give birth and not to uh, be penetrated, but it's its own thing and it's its own sort of side of pleasure. And I think we're still a little bit awkward about this. And I think, yeah, it's an interesting point that we're sort of awkward about the very basics of the vocabulary and then awkward about the, the the experiences and what happens and you know about we're not good at talking about about any of that you know about sexual assault about miscarriage about uh anything that doesn't go well I suppose you know and even even if it does go well you know I think that people uh I only realized when my friends started to have kids how different each birth story is because even birth you know this absolutely triumphant and brilliant experience and everybody's so happy you know babies everybody loves babies and it's a really happy time people you know everybody wants to talk about it but they don't want to talk about the birth story and I just thought birth was kind of the same for everybody and I thought that you know, whether or not you got painkillers was because was 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 a personal decision rather than the facts of each birth being wildly different. And so, you know, I think yeah, we're really bad at talking about almost every aspect of sex and anything that can happen to to the vulva and vagina. So hopefully we will get better, but uh, we're not quite there. No, I completely 
agree. Um, and I still find myself, even though I've read both of your books and I know it's the vulva, I still find myself saying vagina. And I do try and check myself now for like slightly like your voice is in my head, Lynn, every time I do it. So thank you for that. <laughs> I guess the same, uh, the similar question uh, for Natalie, because um, I know you work with a lot of young people. Do you feel like that's changing for them? Like they have a better language to talk about their own bodies and their experiences? Yeah, I really, I really genuinely do, actually. I always come away from from these workshops I do in schools um feeling really hopeful and inspired by the level of knowledge that exists amongst so many young people. And I think that is testament to the fact that there's so much more information out there. You know, s since writing my book, and, and I guess Lynn's coming out as well, Sex Education, the series is released on Netflix, which has been huge. And I think it's absolutely fantastic that something like that is out there. And I really wish that when I was younger, I'd had something that was so you know, honest and frank, candid about about the language around our bodies, but also funny. It kind of comes back to what Lynn was saying earlier about the joys of sex and the joys of our bodies that we also need to remember and that is so often missing in um, some of these kind of conversations around around sex and relationships. But no, I really, I think having been into schools, I feel very optimistic about about the the next generation. You know, and that's and it's not to say there aren't aren't problems. I also there's a worrying trend amongst some young men around, you know, being anti some of these feminist discourses, which I've definitely noticed in a lot of a lot of schools. And I think that's the kind of darker side to the internet that exists and and perhaps is kind of inevitable when you've got a really strong liberation movement from a marginalized group that there's going to be pushback from, you know, those that hold power. I don't I mean I'm not sure what what the kind of the anti-feminist anti-feminist stuff is about um, but it's definitely there as well as the, the progressive stuff but on the whole no I feel I think we've come a long way and particularly from you know in comparison from when I was growing up um, we never spoke about our bodies you know we never spoke about masturbation we never spoke about um, our periods when I first got my period I didn't tell anyone for about six months I didn't tell my parents I felt so much shame about about my body and I think um, yeah, I think we've come a long way, which is which is brilliant. In your book, Natalie, you talk about uh, the origins of the birth control pill and the ways in which obviously it gave these amazing new options to women. But when it was actually quite steeped in racism and, and prejudice. Um, and I wondered if you'd just tell us a little bit about that. Yes, it is an interesting and quite troubling history. So I think it was in the early 60s when the or late 50s when the when the pill was being developed and um as with many medical trials around that time and and I suspect still today it was first tried out on very very poor uh, American women which with devastating effects I think quite a lot of women died a lot of people experienced some of the like more extreme side effects of the contraceptive pill and so then uh, they weren't allowed to test it anymore in America so they moved it. They moved it out of the states to um, to try it on Puerto Rican women, and to the, exactly the same effect. With lots of women who died, lots of people had blood clots and um, were very very sick, had mental health problems. And they changed the composition of the pill. So what we have now is quite different to to what it was then. It's much weaker. But you know there is a there is a very troubled history with with contraception and with you know with a lot of these topics. I mean the fact that the bodies of poor American women and also the bodies of women of colour, poor women in the global south were considered much less important 
you know, so there is, there's, when, when we talk about the liberation of women and, and the pill when it came out was hailed as, as a symbol of the, the sexual liberation of women. But, you know, you have to ask at what cost and which women are we talking about? And it's many of the same questions that we need to be asking in all different aspects of feminism. It's, it's which women are benefiting from these movements? Um, and what demands are we calling for? Is this cis women? Is it, is it trans women? Are we being intersectional in our politics? Are we being aware of class differences? So yeah, I, thought, I think you know when we when we think about contraception, we do always have to consider, and and lots of these topics, we have to consider the the kind of differences between women. It's not all women are the same. And do you know, Lynn, who the audience for your book has been? Because I was thinking that as I was reading it, do you know who your readers are? Um, well, I always say that I think it's probably aimed at people in their late teens and 20s and and I just always presumed that it would be girls and women but actually it's been way broader than that um I think you know women in their 30s and 40s and 50s have have enjoyed it too because like we we, we've discussed you know there's there are gaps in the knowledge even you know when even after you grow up you know the the sex education hasn't been done and, and you sort of spend your life catching up and, 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 and getting information as you go. But also men, cisgender, straight men and gay men have been much more interested in it than I thought they would be. And I, and that's, I think that's really heartening. Actually, I remember it going for a coffee with somebody who he's a gay man and he, doesn't know very much about vaginas, um, but he had read the book and he, he was, he was really pleased about having read the book because he wanted to sort of be able to understand what his sister went through. He said that his sister experienced really heavy periods and period pain and that reading the book was really helpful for him to understand that for her. I've, I've heard that a few times. Um, I actually just got a message from somebody today from, from a man about having read the book and enjoyed it and found, found, he found it worthwhile. And, and that happens much more than I would have thought it, it would happen. You talk specifically and explicitly in the book about your own experiences with things like thrush and period pain and abortion and masturbation. Um, and I wondered how important it was for you to include your own experiences and what that was like to be so open. Yeah, so it's a weird one because I think that it's quite important to say that I don't think that women should have to tell their stories in order to get human rights. It became a hot topic with me too as well because, you know, women were were telling their stories and presenting their stories and, and that was the only way to be listened to. But then we did see how powerful it is. And it was similar with the repeal the 8th. So when there was the campaign to legalize abortion in Ireland, women came forward and started to tell their stories. And I wrote about having had an abortion. I wrote about it in Vogue magazine. And I hadn't, you know, I, I, I told my parents about the abortion before I published the piece, but I hadn't told them about it previous to that. And I think there were a lot of people having that, that same experience in Ireland at that time. And it was a sort of, it was painful for, for so many people, but I think it was really, really useful. And there was a piece of research done that, that it was just a survey at the end of the, after the referendum, but it asked people what had made the biggest impact on deciding how they would vote. And people said personal stories was, was that came out 
the top, at the top. And I think that's so telling. And so I suppose I feel like for me, I'm quite privileged. You know, I'm a freelance journalist uh, most of the time. So I don't have an employer who would be who, you know, I feel like it's, it's almost good for my career to be able to speak out. It doesn't harm my career. I have a very supportive and loving family and husband. And, you know, it's quite easy for me to tell my story because also I enjoy creating narratives or I enjoy thinking about experiences as a kind of narrative. So that for me is an easy thing to do. And so I think if it's an easy thing for you to do or it's a thing that you want to do, then it's, it's, it's useful and good. But I don't think that it's ever something that you should feel that you have to do. So I feel like I can do it because it, it, it's not that big a deal to me. So I may as well. So thank you both so much for your books and for being part of this year's Birmingham Literature Festival programme. It's been a pleasure to speak to you and participate in such an important and engaging discussion. Um, thank you both again. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Leave us a review and a rating. Find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Beham Lit Fest. And take a look at the rest of this year's digital programme on our website at www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcasts. Until then, happy reading. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is curated by Chantal Edwards and produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands.